The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Is it possible Trump has gone to the Supreme Court to protect the timing of his formal announcement that he is running for president for 2024? That could be the only coherent explanation for his appeal of the special master compromise, an appeal so narrow and technical that a legal friend of mine said it's like asking to have the ruling overturned because there was a comma in paragraph 37 instead of a semicolon. Here is the timing theory. Trump gets that announcing his candidacy before the midterms, especially now in the final month, could tip a series of close elections nationwide against the Republican fascists and motivate the Democrats that much more to show up and vote. Trump does not give a damn about the Republicans, of course. He's not a human being the way we understand the species, but he needs as many Republicans supervising the 2024 election at the state level and maybe controlling the House and the Senate to help him claim victory by any means necessary two years and one month from now. Thus, his plan is to wait to announce his candidacy until next month after the midterms. Get it done before Thanksgiving so you don't get buried by the holiday news and holiday shopping. And most importantly, get it done after the midterms, but before the Department of Justice indicts him. 
The only way to do that is to keep up the full court stall in the courts for another few weeks. It is hard to know if Trump thinks an indictment will help his candidacy or hurt it. He knows that either way he can fundraise off of it. He could even still believe that the Department of Justice would not indict him because he is a declared presidential candidate. And while that theory sounds like Trump to his hollowed out core, it is undermined by the reality that if he really thought declaring for the presidency would protect him from indictment, he would have done it yesterday or during the raid on August 8th or on January 20th, 2021 or in November of 2016. Whatever the exact machinations going on inside Trump world, this filing is bullcrap. It is boilerplate. It is the 25-page paper you have to write, and when you run out of the nonsense you have prepared for it, you wrap it up with, in conclusion, Trump world is a land of contrasts. And it gets dropped, this paper does, in the lap of Clarence Thomas. We know what Clarence Thomas is. Now we are simply haggling about the price and how much of one he is, and how much of American law he is willing to overrule. And in learning those things, we will find out exactly how irretrievably corrupt our judicial system has become, especially our Supreme Court. To recap the legal stall so far, first, Trump's judge, one of the last he ever appointed, Eileen Cannon, paid him back for the job, which if you've seen her rulings, she clearly needs paid him back for the job by ruling against all precedent to throw the monkey wrench of a special master into the proceedings that did not require one. Then the 11th Circuit of Court of Appeals said, fine, whatever, but the special master does not get to review 103 ultra-classified documents. The next stage after that was to appeal to the Supreme Court, and the way that is done is for whichever Supreme Court justice has jurisdiction over the 11th Circuit Appeals Court to investigate the case and potentially issue an emergency order. In that context, the 11th Circuit Appeals Court belongs to yeah, Clarence Thomas. His job, from the Trump viewpoint, is to delay everything. Thomas almost immediately responded to the filing by giving the Department of Justice until next Tuesday at 5 p.m. to respond to the motion. So tack on an extra week to the delay of Trump being indicted or not indicted or whatever he is delaying for. And tack on how many more weeks of delay if Thomas does what Trump expects him to do after that. Thomas could uphold the actual law, but it's Clarence Thomas. He knows what's expected of him. He knows that the motion he's been asked to rule on might as well be 35 blank pages. The New York Times put the biggest tell of the meaninglessness of the Trump appeal right up near the top of their story in paragraph two. Quoting today's paper, Trump's lawyers did not ask the Supreme Court to overturn the most important part of the appeals court's intervention, its decision to free the Justice Department to continue using documents with classification markings in its criminal investigation of Mr. Trump. I'll also quote Ryan Goodman from Just Security for the millionth time. Goodman notes that the Trump appeal to Clarence Thomas claims the special master was supposed to see the classified documents so that he could rule on the issue of declassification, even though nowhere in any of Trump's vast bowl of legal bullcrap have his lawyers even once asserted that Trump declassified any of these documents. Goodman also notes Trump's lawyers, quote, apparently believe in a category of documents that's both classified and his personal record. 
Other legal observers emphasize that Trump is asking Thomas to agree that the 11th Circuit Appeals Court had no jurisdiction, that it had no right to mess with what Trump's special master could and could not see, which is almost exactly as nonsensical as if Trump were now arguing that Clarence Thomas and the Supreme Court had no jurisdiction to overrule the 11th Circuit Appeals Court. There is one legal theory that goes this way, that beyond the stall, Trump may be running a second scam here, that he no longer has copies of the 103 classified documents that are at the heart of his plea to Clarence Thomas, and that if Thomas rules in Trump's favor, the special master gets copies of those 103 documents, and so do Trump's lawyers, and thus Trump gets 103 classified documents back for whatever purpose. Exactly what Trump would do with them, however, is far from clear, except maybe put himself at further risk of possessing documents that our form of government says he is not supposed to have. I would joke that he wants copies of the documents so he can frame them and hang them on his wall at Mar-a-Lago. But you and I both know that framing and hanging them on his wall might actually be the reasons he wants the copies. There is one last question of timing here beyond Trump's desire to stall to control when the Department of Justice moves against him. Any legal noise he makes takes attention away from other courtrooms. And today, testimony resumes at the Oath Keepers trial where yesterday there were two bombshells that probably did not get the notice they deserved. First, that somebody who attended a planning meeting of Trump's would-be stormtroopers in November of 2020, made a recording of that meeting and sent a tip to the FBI later that month, a tip which the FBI ignored, a tip the FBI did not respond to, in fact, until Trump was long gone in March of 2021 when the recordist resent the tip. The other bombshell is what was on that tape that the prosecution played. We're not getting out of this without a fight. There's going to be a fight, says Oath Keepers Chief Elmer Stewart. You'll shoot your eye out, Rhodes. But let's just do it smart and let's do it while President Trump is still commander in chief. If the fight comes, Rhodes says, let the fight come. Let Antifa go. If they go kinetic on us, then we'll go kinetic back on them. Remember, the Oath Keepers' defense is they were only there to act legally on legal orders they knew Trump was about to legally issue. This doesn't sound like that. Quote, I'm willing to sacrifice myself for that. If things go kinetic, good. If they blow bombs up and shoot us, great. Because that brings the president reason and rationale to invoke the Insurrection Act. Our mission is going to be to go into D.C., but I do want some Oath Keepers to stay on the outside and to stay fully armed and prepared to go in if they have to. So if the S-word kicks off, then you rock and roll. I am now saying this for the third time. Every day of the Oath Keepers trial is going to look worse for Trump than did the day before. What the prosecution is laying out is a clear picture of what the Oath Keepers planned, a violent insurrection to overturn the outcome of the presidential election while simultaneously providing Trump with an excuse to use the Insurrection Act and end democracy in our country. All prosecutors now have to do is show who, outside the Oath Keepers, knew of the plotting of this nightmare. The Proud Boys, Stop the Steal, 
Roger Stone? And that's bad for Trump, but not fatal. What if it's Mark Meadows? Cash Patel? If it's Junior Trump? Well, if it's any of them, then you and I both know who must have also known. And if a link between the Oath Keepers and Trump himself is proved, all the Clarence Thomases in the world are not going to save Donald Trump's ass. Still ahead on Countdown, the Herschel Walker blowback is not about Herschel Walker. It's about his son. That home run thing is over. The ball was caught by an investment millionaire. I'll explain again how nearly all of baseball's records are not simple questions of who had the largest or greatest number, but what the context is. And so you and I are perfectly entitled to say Aaron Judge's 62 homers are more than Barry Bonds' 73. And they knew no woman would ever succeed anchoring the news in primetime. They knew no LGBTQ woman would attract male viewers. And they knew MSNBC would never support two liberal shows. It is a big anniversary in the year-long struggle to get Rachel Maddow her own damn program. That's next. This is Countdown. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Hello. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica. 
a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess. The 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about indigenous women's disappearances. And the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you know, this is Countdown with, uh, you know, Keith Olbermann. Thank you, Richard Lewis. Still had on Countdown, Aaron Judge does it. And of course you can say he now holds the all-time baseball home run record. Half of baseball's records are not just numerical bests. They are math with context. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need whom you can help. Every dog has its day to Greenville, Tennessee and Ranger. And you know why they use the cliche like he was hit by a truck. Nine months old and beautiful jet black shepherd Ranger was hit by a truck. Broken pelvis, broken legs. He's had one surgery to repair his femur and both of his back legs. And he will need three more operations. Big Dog Haven in Tennessee is doing a fundraiser for him on Cuddly, if you can donate, or just look for my tweet about him on Twitter, on my feed for Dogs in Trouble, at Tom Jumbo Grumbo. If you can't donate, retweeting his bio so others who might be able to can see it will also help very much. And thank you very much. Postscripts to the news, some headlines, some commentary, some snark, Dateline, Georgia. What, did you think Herschel Walker was going to drop out or that the Republicans were going to back away from him? What did we learn from Trump? Lie whenever necessary and power at any price. Any damage to Herschel Walker is not going to come from his abortion, but from his son, who followed Monday's tweets with Tuesday's videos. And frankly, they sound like two things. One, they sound like... A kid with a terrible father who kept quiet about how terrible he was until there was just one scandal too many and he broke. And two, they sound like every campaign ad Senator Raphael Warnock could possibly need for the next month. Family values, people. He has four kids, four different women, wasn't in the house raising one of them. He was out having sex with other women. Do you care about family values? I have a silent lie after lie after lie. The abortion card drops yesterday. It's literally his handwriting in the card. They say they have receipts, whatever. He gets on Twitter. He lies about it. Okay, I'm done. Done. Everything has been a lie. And so for the right to say I'm being suspicious for saying, hey, I'm, I'm done with the lies, when you all have been calling me saying, is this true about your dad? Gosh, we're not going to win Georgia, this candidate. That's been you. Naturally, the GOP went after Christian Walker. Anonymous quote from near Herschel Walker, deeply disturbed kid, spoiled brat, solely to blame if Herschel loses the race. You know, you say that last part as if it were a bad thing. Herschel Walker has no more business being a U.S. senator than I do. 
All right, well, significantly less than I do. Also, the tip of the old chapeau to conservative pundit Eric Erickson. No, seriously. When the Herschel Walker abortion story broke Monday night, it was Erickson who wrote that he thought everybody knew already and that it was old news. He later deleted that tweet and then said that a rumor was old news. Erickson was right about that. Citing four sources, Politico reports that months ago, quote, top Republicans in the state, including those advising his team, warned Walker that the story could torpedo his campaign and that some Georgia Republicans wanted him to drop out because of the abortion rumor. His team downplayed the potential disruption it would cause. But according to one of those people, Politico reports, they did not outright deny it. It was, eh, it's not going to come out. There was one small surprise. Within minutes of the revelation of the story with receipts, Walker promised to sue the Daily Beast. The next morning, his lawyer told local reporters, we are currently considering our options, but no final decision has been made on the future handling of this matter. Or, too long didn't read, what they're saying there is, uh, guilty. This is Sports Center. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Uh, that should have been uh, uh, what short version? Uh, guilty. In sports, so Aaron Judge finally did it. First at bat, second game of the day-night doubleheader at Texas last night. Off pitcher Jesus Tinoco, 62 home runs. And again, for my money, that is the record. And let me repeat why it is the record by asking you a question. Who holds the Major League Baseball record for the most strikeouts by a pitcher in one season? Almost everybody, including me, will say Nolan Ryan with 383 in 1973. Except the most strikeouts in a season by a pitcher in Major League history is actually 513 by Matt Kilroy of the Baltimore Orioles of 1886. And nobody recognizes Matt Kilroy's 513 strikeouts as the record, even though it is literally 130 more strikeouts than Nolan Ryan got. But applying the Bonds rule, Kilroy's number has to be the record. 513 is more than 383. In fact, there are now seven pitchers who struck out more men in a season than Nolan Ryan did. He is only eighth on the mathematical list. We do not count Matt Kilroy, and we do count Nolan Ryan because of context. In Kilroy's season of 1886, the pitcher stood just 50 feet away from the plate, not today's 60 feet 6 inches. Also, you only got to walk after five balls, not four balls. And 1886 was the first season that the batter could no longer choose whether the pitcher threw the pitch high or low. Ricky Henderson is the stolen base leader with 130, but somebody else had 138 in 1887. Who has the wins record? Denny McLean with 31 in 1968, Jack Cheeseboro with 41 in 1904, or Old Hoss Radborn with 60 in 1884. And who has the all-time record for the highest batting average in a major league season? The modern record holder has always been Rogers Hornsby with 424 in 1924. But last winter, baseball designated several of the old segregated, quote, Negro leagues as major leagues. And there is a new all-time record for the highest batting average. It's 471 by Tatello Vargas of the 1943 New York Cubans. 
even though his league only played a 30-game season and even though you never heard of him until five seconds ago or 10 days ago when I first mentioned Tetelo Vargas, most historians will stick with Hornsby, except Hornsby's 424 is now just 15th on the numerical mathematical list. Probably half of baseball's single-season records are not just simple questions of mathematical addition or subtraction. They're about context and how the rules change and the perspective of generations. And now, if we want them to be, they can be about cheating and not cheating. And the bottom line is the records are what we say they are. And if the consensus is Barry Bonds was a cheat who did not honestly earn his record, he does not hold that record. Besides which... The son of the man who held the record before there was an Aaron Judge or a Barry Bonds or a Mark McGuire, he says the record belongs to Aaron Judge. Here is Roger Maris Jr. It gives people a chance to look at somebody who uh, you know, should be revered for hitting 62 home runs and not just as a, a guy who did it in the American League. He should be revered for you know, being the actual single-season home run champ. I mean, that's really who he is if he hits 62, and, uh, and I think that's what needs to happen. I think baseball needs to look at the records, and I think baseball should do something. Amen, Roger Maris Jr. So there it is. The record is Aaron Judge, 62 or more. Barry Bonds, just watching. Also in sports, the Olympic world has lost one of its heroes, a man who never participated in a single Olympic event, not officially anyway. His name was Jim Redmond. And if that name means nothing to you, the image will, when I hopefully evoke it, at the 1992 Summer Games in Barcelona, Derek Redmond of Great Britain posted the fastest time in his heat for the 400-meter race. He advanced to the semifinals, and coming down the stretch... He tore his hamstring. Derek Redmond, tears flowing from his eyes in tremendous pain, limping, tried to finish the race anyway. That's when the other man appeared, grabbing Redmond and moving slowly and painfully with him across the finish line. The other man, of course, was Jim Redmond, Derek's father. Jim Redmond has died in England at the age of 81. Still ahead, this is the 15th anniversary of one of the many days that MSNBC management told me there was no way they would ever permit there to be a Rachel Maddow show. First, the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. Let me start by congratulating Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and his in-person efforts post-Hurricane Ian. You've seen the photos. I just want to say bravo, Ron, for putting those boots on the ground. The bronze CNN boss David Zaslav, chairman of Warner Bros. Discovery. He's not the one I used to think ate pace. That was Chris Licht. This is David Zaslav from Warner Bros. Discovery. The Daily Beast reports that a week ago today, Zaslav confirmed cost-saving measures and staff firings and then tried to lighten the mood in a communal town hall among shell-shocked CNN employees who have seen not only a salary purge, but a purge of many of the liberals there. Zaslav told them that each employee would soon be receiving a fleece vest. Apparently, Zaslav wears fleece vests, branded vests with company logos on them. He wears them all the time, and he thinks he's famous for them. Two things. 
when I worked at CNN in the early 80s and we were brand new and we lose like um, $80 million an hour or whatever it was, we used to race each other with our new paychecks to the bank to make sure ours was the one that got cashed. When that was the case, the Christmas gift in the sports department, personally bought for us by Ted Turner, were CNN sports caps. And we were damned surprised and pleased. The next year, 1983, the whole network got CNN rugby shirts. Mine lasted until like 1997. I wish I still had it. It was a great shirt, great gift. Second thing, the branded fleece vests that Zaslav is giving today's CNN staffers should have as the branding. We fired all the liberals to appease Trump and he sued us anyway and all I got was this lousy vest. The runner-up, Roger Waters, please stop digging. The musician tells Rolling Stone that he's not an anti-Semite, he's being buried for his criticism of Israel which he expressed by using as a show prop an inflatable pig with a Jewish star on it. Quote, as we discussed the subject during our interview, Waters argues that some Jewish people in the U.S. and U.K. bear responsibility for the actions of Israel, quoting him, particularly because they pay for everything. Unquote. Waters also tells Rolling Stone, don't forget, I'm on a kill list that is supported by the Ukrainian government. I'm on the effing list and they've killed people recently. Raj, the only kill list you're on is the one that kills your career, and it is run by Roger Waters. But our winner, Mehmet Oz, and we're going to turn the music off for this one because this is not his cute little tone deafness about what Pennsylvania voters call a veggie tray, and it ain't crudite. This is not him lying about how many houses he owns and missing by like eight. This isn't about him running for the Senate in Pennsylvania while he lives in Jersey. This is Jezebel.com confirming the rumors and the disconnected reports of the last few months and leading to the inescapable conclusion Dr. Mehmet Oz, Republican candidate for Senate from Pennsylvania, unnecessarily killed and unnecessarily tortured before killing more than 300 dogs between 1989 and 2010. To calculate that horrifying total, 75 medical studies published by Oz at Columbia University were reviewed. Studies, I believe I said studies. Quoting them, Oz's team conducted experiments on at least 1,027 live animal subjects that included dogs, pigs, calves, rabbits, and small rodents. 34 of these experiments resulted in the deaths of at least 329 dogs, while two of his experiments killed 31 pigs and 38 experiments killed 661 rabbits and rodents, end quote. Even as an animal lover, I, I reluctantly concede that some experimentation on animals, even fatal experimentation, may be unavoidable. Maybe. I'm on the edge on this. But Dr. Oz tortured these dogs. A whistleblower, a vet named Catherine Delorto, testified to a range of horrors that the dogs in particular were subjected to. One dog kept alive in pain for a month, a litter of puppies killed by intracardiac injection with syringes of expired drugs and no sedation. And there's worse than that. I read it. I won't force you to listen to it. I met this monster, Mehmet Oz, once. Suffice to say, if I meet him again, I will spit in his face. Mehmet Oz, who was human garbage and is today's worst person in the world. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe 
Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess. The 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about indigenous women's disappearances. And the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. To the number one story on the countdown and my favorite topic, me and things I promised not to tell. To his credit, Phil Griffin later recanted this and apologized for it, at least to me. But during the fourth or fifth month out of the 12 that I tried to talk him and MSNBC into giving one of our regular countdown guests a shot at guest hosting the show, he said this, and he said it as near as I can calculate, on or about October 5th, 2007. So the theory is, he said, straight guys are not going to watch a lesbian anchoring the news or doing a political commentary show or whatever. 
Now, he showed, to borrow a current phrase from the Trump documents case, a little consciousness of guilt. I have nothing against them. God, no. I'm not prejudiced. I went to Vassar. He actually said that. I think she's great on the show, but, you know, maybe men just won't be, you know... I pretended to not know, so he'd have to say it. They won't be attracted to Rachel Maddow. Honest to God, even as he spoke, I had a sense of the great opportunity flying out Phil Griffin's NBC window. Or maybe more accurately, I had a sense of the opportunity to build a base of authentic, fact-driven, genuine, liberal news commentary on corporate television being pushed out that window to plummet to its death in that surprisingly chintzy skating rink next to 30 Rock. I told Phil that I hoped he realized what he was saying, whether he and thus NBC thought they were not prejudiced. They were, in fact, prejudicing at right that very minute. And there were many of them prejudicing. But I also needed to be pragmatic. I told him that he was also wildly wrong about his assumption of who was attractive to whom. And the way to find that out was to go to the popular liberal website, The Daily Coast. I told him every night they live blog countdown, and when Rachel is on, there are three kinds of comments. Most are about what she's talked about and how smart she is and how right she is. The next biggest group of comments is asking why she doesn't have her own show. And then the last group is everybody who wants to go to bed with her. I'd say there are very few lesbians in this group, Phil, mostly straight men insisting they'd ask her out just in case she'd gotten her orientation wrong. And there's a lot of straight women in there saying they date her just in case they'd gotten their orientation wrong. And for God's sakes, there are comments from people claiming they're gay men and they say they love her so much they'd give it a shot. I confess this might be counterintuitive if you were a television executive and thus not as smart as the average person, but it was still all true. I hope to God this is not what you're basing your position on this on, I told him. But she is not physically attractive only to other lesbians she is in fact physically attractive to everybody phil cut me off it won't work buddy besides even if i believed you there are all the problems that steve kappas has with the idea last time i brought it up i thought kappas was going to start crying steve kappas was the president of nbc news how no one had any idea he had been Brian Williams' line producer upon the launch of MSNBC more than a decade earlier, and after Brian finished murdering Tom Brokaw's career and carving up the parts and smuggling them out under his toga, Kappus got the big chair. Griffin was not yet officially president of MSNBC, but would become so soon, and he ran the place, and Kappus was his boss. I did not literally pitch this new Maddo show idea every day to every one of the dozens of Thanksgiving Day parade balloon-sized egos who ran MSNBC and NBC News, and they did not literally each have a different answer. It only seemed that way. Kappas, who would later be fired by his new Comcast boss after, she told me, he told her he would not work for some woman. Kappas had some gender-based misgivings, too, but the objection that was uniquely his was that to air a second show similar to mine would, quote, brand MSNBC as a liberal network. He then contradicted himself. You have the only liberal newscast on cable. Why do you want to give up the monopoly? I really did not know where he was going with this. Okay, you're the only liberal news show on cable. No, on television. Why let anybody else onto your turf? What if she was more popular than you? What if she was easier to work with than you? And, and we phased you out and phased her in. What if she took less money? 
and we could be paying you less money or threatening you to have to take less money. What if she took less? What if she took money we could be paying you? I felt myself inhaling deeply. Uh, Steve, I, I don't do this so I can be some kind of liberal Rush Limbaugh. I, I believe what I say on the air. I, I believe it's necessary to the, you know, survival of the country. I, I really don't think we can survive another Republican president after Bush, Steve. I want other liberal hosts. Hell, I want 23 other liberal hosts. And, you know, I have enough money. If you want to give me some more money, I'll take some more money. But I'd rather have another show on MSNBC following mine. And, you know, about the money, money is another reason I don't care about a monopoly. I know this will sound weird. I think you guys should be rewarded with more money for backing me up as this show has gotten, you know, less and less newsy and more and more commentary -y. That's what I think of when I think of the term, he's a team player. You should get some money. Steve Kappas moved behind his desk and began to shuffle papers. I could see the papers were blank. And Steve, I know how much money this would be worth to you. That got his attention. I said, you, you do know the salesmen wander into my office once a week or they send bottles of champagne or if they ask if they can send me hookers because they're finally selling ad time on the network. You know that, right? He nodded with annoyance. So they tell me that your profit off me last year was like $100 million. I don't care if it's half that much or twice that much, but I know it's a lot considering we were losing that much four years ago when we were in fourth place. How come you don't want to make more of that money? What if her show did as well as mine? Between the shows, that's $200 million a year, maybe. What if it only did half as well? That's $150 million a year. Why doesn't NBC want that money? What if it does twice as well as mine? Why do you insist on drawing the largest audience in this network's history for a cable news liberal show, and then as it ends at 8.59.59, you yell at them, everybody get the hell out. We don't want your liberal kind here. It's 9 o'clock. It's time for Dan Abrams and the missing white woman of the week show. Get out. Campus stood up, which was my signal to leave. I don't discuss network finance with talent. Ask Jeff Zucker. Oh, and even if I agreed with you, there are all the problems Jeff Zucker has with the show. Not a man of honor, Jeff Zucker was perpetually reneging on something he had written into my contract renegotiation from 2007. He summoned me one day to explain why he was reneging on the monthly essays I was supposed to do for NBC Nightly News with Brian Williams. The easy explainer was Brian was threatened by them. In point of fact, Brian was threatened by everything, including rocks and trees. I did not fight over the tedious essays. And instead, I switched the subject to the 9 p.m. show on MSNBC, and Zucker resumed his best friend act. Look, you're doing great for us. You are us. There's no doubt about this. We stank. We lost money. Now we stink less, and we make money. Thank you. This is why we gave you more money. I got nothing against Rachel Maddow, but you got to drop this. We don't need another show. What maybe we need is supersizing your show. Run it, you know, till 9.15 or 9.30, or, or we just rerun the whole hour again at 9 and maybe again at 10. And of course... And here came the Jeff Zucker extraterrestrial lizard smile. We'd have to pay you more. It was tough ever to surprise Zucker, but he flinched when I asked him point blank about Phil Griffin's problems with the, you know, LGBTQ hosts. 
Oh, we all say a lot of things. But how could he have said that? He's in charge of MSNBC. Nobody in charge of MSNBC would ever say a thing like that. Now, what I remember him and I discussing is, outside of the ones Ailes has put on at 10 after Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity, name me one woman who has succeeded anchoring her own news show in primetime on cable. One woman. Or on broadcast. Name me one on broadcast. Connie Chung? Katie Couric? Is Katie doing well at CBS without us? Don't you, didn't you tell Moonves she wouldn't play in primetime? You were right. Now think about that. And then think about how you'd supersize Countdown and how much you'd charge us for it. Okay, pal? If you ever had sudden memory loss and you couldn't tell Jeff Zucker from Phil Griffin, the rule of thumb was Zucker always called you pal and Griffin always called you buddy. The problem with this misogynistic, sexist, narrow-minded answer was that it was factually correct. And I'll wait a second. Of course, it was only correct in the same way that you could have looked to the White House and said there had been 43 presidents to that point, and they'd all been white guys, and that proved that minorities and women just couldn't win an election. No woman had succeeded as a solo news anchor in cable or broadcast in prime time. And I said to Zucker, maybe no woman has done that because the ones you've hired since I first came here have been like Debbie Norville and Ashley Banfield and Cynthia Oxney and Laura Ingram and Monica Crowley and Rita effing Cosby. And hereupon I did my impression of Rita Cosby's gravel-goggling voice. Zucker had no answer to that or anything else. Just as Phil Griffin had no answer and Kappas and everybody else I tried, and I even tried Brian Williams. They had no answers to my inescapable argument, and I had no power to act without them. I saw the future. The next great star of cable news, millions of dollars in profits for NBC, and another foothold on the sheer cliff of corporate media's built-in conservatism, a little breathing room for me. I told everybody who would stop long enough to listen, even the future star herself, And incredibly, I had to talk her out of her own doubts, too. And we went on like this virtually from the day I first talked to the object of my programming desire in 2007 until the blistering afternoon in July of 2008, when Phil Griffin finally got the promotion to be president of MSNBC, and he phoned me and he said, Buddy, we can now do what we've been planning. And I had to stop myself from saying, Who's this we, Lone Ranger? The entire edifice of MSNBC and NBC News above me was not only adamantine against the Rachel Maddow show, but it refused to even let her guest host my show. It was this way for nearly a year, without one crack in solidarity and without one answer. I even had to convince Rachel herself, although in retrospect she seems to have been mixing a kind of legitimate future shock fear with some very convincing Richard III refusing the crown jazz. I do not think she was being insincere when she said success might destroy her. I do not think she was making it up when she said, but Keith, you have to remember a couple of years ago, I was dressed up as a dancing cell phone outside a cell phone store in Massachusetts. I don't think I'd F it up, but what if it Fs me up? The ice finally broke not long after I had a nightmare. It was so terrifying and realistic and unfortunately so plausible that my then live-in girlfriend, Katie Turr, actually had to shake me awake. I was yelling, apparently, while asleep and, and not because I was being chased by monsters or by courses that I'd entirely forgotten from my senior year in college or both. In this nightmare, 
John Klein, the president of CNN, who had wanted to pirate me away before he was overruled by his boss, Jim Walton, had fired the person he had to take instead of me, Campbell Brown, the NBC talent he'd settled on. And the reason this was so terrifying was that in real life, it was likely, if not necessarily imminent. Campbell was a chain-smoking nitwit with what she only thought was a hidden conservative agenda. We had co-anchored two days of the Weekend Today show, and they had to open up the emergency exit to the street so she could light up a heater, not just during commercial breaks, but even during two-minute-long correspondent reports. She just kept smoking and smoking and smoking and smoking, and I was a smoker and I was repulsed. In real life, CNN was going to replace Campbell Brown soon or late. The 8 p.m. CNN hosts had been in order Connie Chung, Paula Zahn, and Campbell Brown. And in my nightmare, the next host would also be a woman, only this time it would be somebody who was going to kick my ass. Rachel Maddow. Let me guess why you're here again, buddy, Phil Griffin said the next afternoon in his office. It was now the middle of the winter of 07-08. We've been all through this. Well, what we've been through was various iterations of the supersized countdown idea finally dropped by Zucker in favor of a novel concept that he and Phil Griffin had dreamed up, an LGBTQ host at 9 o'clock. But of course, not the LGBTQ host that I had suggested, but rather their brilliant idea for a host for the 9 p.m. show on MSNBC following mine... Rosie O'Donnell. In November 2007, Phil Griffin told me he thought they were close to signing Rosie O'Donnell, and as usual, he had leaked it to the New York Times just so everybody would know how damned earnest he was. But then Rosie announced she only wanted to do a show three days a week and none of them in a row. The prospect of Monday, Rosie. Tuesday, Bupkus. Wednesday, Rosie. Thursday, Bupkus. Friday, Rosie proved too much even for Phil's ability to convince himself of almost anything. You got anything new I can shoot down, or can we just talk about the Mets? I told him about my Rachel Maddow, John Klein nightmare. CNN, they don't even know who Rachel Maddow is. Why would they hire her? Why would they put her on at eight against you? Why would you put a liberal show on against another liberal show? The nonsense of his rhetorical question actually seemed to briefly register with him. Then it died quickly somewhere in some brain cells burned out by all the stuff he'd smoked when we'd worked together at CNN in the early 80s. Nah. I mumbled, I work for idiots, but it was not loud enough for him to hear. Phil, what if they do it just to, you know, take away some of our audience? What if they do it just to make sure we don't give her our 9 o'clock show? What if they, you know, gave her a show... And then promoted it with, what are they called? Advertisements? And maybe even, you know, commercials? Or what if she's really effing good like she is every effing time we effing put her on the show with me? Can't we at least try her as my fill-in host? Can't we at least get her a deal to keep her from leaving just as a contributor? What would it cost you? 40 grand? 50 grand? To my shock... Phil Griffin agreed to give Rachel Maddow a contributor's contract for 40 or 50 grand. Yeah, let's do that, buddy. Will that show it shut you up for a while? I shook his hand. No, of course not, I said. And of course, he was lying. Phil never signed Rachel to a contributor's contract, which is how, a few weeks later, we almost lost her to CNN for 250 freaking dollars. 
and I had to pay her $437 in cash to keep her from going to CNN. But I've already told you that story. I swear it's true. Done all the damage I can do here. Help me out. Give this thing a heart or a smiley emoji or forward it to somebody or give it a good review or subscribe or whatever. The countdown theme from Beethoven's Ninth was arranged, produced, and performed by countdown musical directors Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel, produced by TKO Brothers. Our other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed, and our sports music, the Olderman ESPN2 theme, written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. And our announcer today was Richard Lewis. Everything else was pretty much my fault. And it's my fault that this keeps being read exactly the same way every day. I'm going to rewrite this for you for tomorrow. That's Countdown for this, the 638th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Let's arrest him now while we still can. There will be a new episode tomorrow. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.